Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Matt Lyon. Matt founded Hydropack in 2001 and currently serves as the brand's president and CEO. He's worked in the outdoor industry for decades and serves as the board chair of the California Outdoor Recreation Partnership. Thanks for joining us, Matt. All right. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us a bit about how Hydropack got started. What was your first product and what was like the problem you were trying to solve with it? Boy, we got it. So Hydropack is 20 years old. We started in 2001. Um, okay. I had been in the uh, kind of the sporting goods industry for a few years. Uh, I was uh, working at Marin Mountain Bikes for five years uh, prior to that and had been involved in uh, launches of high-tech snowshoes and also some uh, was in the footwear industry for a couple of years. So had mm-hmm. had a, a real chance to get around um, making products um, that people could use and could get direct feedback from. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a real affinity for uh, sports, for uh, being active. I've always mm-hmm. been a cyclist, a hiker, a biker, other things to start. Um, and so uh, I actually left Marin um, Mountain Bikes in the summer of 2001 and started looking for something to do on my own. As an entrepreneur, I was ready to mm-hmm. kind of do it on my own nickel, if you will say, take take yeah. the risk on myself. Yeah. and. Uh, it so happened that uh, Bell Sports that summer was selling a few of its brands. And uh, so I got uh, in contact with the folks there in Santa Cruz um, and uh, put in an offer. Um, they so also sold Road Gear that summer, mm-hmm. a brand they had that uh, was sold huh. to Yakima and shut down shortly thereafter. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, that, it, well, yeah, that was a, a story in itself. Um, the the two uh, bidders for the Hydropack brand were myself and Camelback. Um, Camelback was owned by sense. the same Camelback was owned by the same company as Yakima, so mm-hmm. Yakima had just bought Road Gear and shut it down, um, and so the thought was that Camelback was going to do the same thing to Hydropack, oh, and yeah. so the uh, so so that wasn't very popular with the employees at mm-hmm. Bell Sports because they had invested a lot of time in both brands. Yeah. So the uh, the management decided to sell it to me instead of Camelback. Um, wow. And so that was uh, kind of my that was my start. That was my opportunity. We agreed on the deal on September tenth, two thousand and one. So hmm. I wow. was day before September eleventh. Day before nine eleven. Wow. Yeah. So I was in my uh, lawyer's office drafting up the documents and with the TV on the on the conference room table kind of watching the twin towers yeah. fall so oh, it was uh did you have second thoughts then were you like oh no this is going to be bad for business or it all started hitting me the next day i just the kind of what have i done when i think it it took a little while for that to sink in with everybody yeah um and i really ha- i didn't realize how big of an impact it would have on me um mm. because i was very focused on just you know i w- my goal was to 
to take a, a product line that was um, big enough or of a size that an entrepreneur could start with. You know, mm -hmm. I had been doing bikes and that was a little bit more formidable of a challenge. Um, and I wanted an area where we could innovate and come up with something that was meaningful for the customers, mm -hmm. but was also patentable um, yeah. from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really like this category um, in that there's a little bit of technology involved in the water containment section, the reservoirs, whatnot, but there's also mm -hmm. a lot of accessibility with the backpacks and the, the cut and sew side. So I was just really caught up in what I was doing and I didn't realize until later um, how much 9-11 would affect business. And then also uh, uh, it if in particular affected our category uh, because of all the military purchasing oh, right. and hydration packs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, it was just a really kind of crazy time. Huh. Um, yeah, but for me, I was, I started off really focused on just really trying to create a better mousetrap, you know, that I mm -hmm. liked the technologies that had been developed, um, started working with uh, the factories in China and myself, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer uh, sitting down mm -hmm. doing some um, development and thinking through the products, using the products, kind of starting to get out and go to and talk to consumers and go through, you know, that was the launch for me of starting this whole process of innovation for improvement of the products for the athletes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now, now for the company, we kind of, we talk about our mission being to uh, help athletes reach peak performance. So that's mm -hmm. how we call it today, but really it's the exact same thought that I had back then, which yeah. is how can we make these things better? And, and how can I make, you know, a brand out of this and something that everybody will, will recognize that this is a better product. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was quite a beginning. Yeah. Well, so when you bought the company, was it just you or did you have like sort of a team that you were had in place and were going to bring along or, or what was sort of your, your game plan? Um, it, it was just me. Uh, the team I had were all the sales reps that I knew. So okay. I was able to call up uh, a whole <clears throat> full national team of independent sales reps who knew me, knew me from uh, Marin Mountain Bikes and mm -hmm. who were willing to bring on the brand and introduce it to the shops. And then, and then uh, at Marin, I had made a number of uh, shop contacts and relationships. So really my, my, and I knew some of the editors in the magazines, I knew uh, mm -hmm. some of the big buyers. So I had a lot of contacts, but from a team standpoint, it was just me. So it was literally the, you know, me in the garage on day one. Oh, um, wow. And then, but the, but the, the, um, like I said, the factory was already, the factory relationship has already been established. And so I started growing that from the beginning. And really we just, had, I added the first employee probably a month after I started and have been growing since then. Okay, um, cool. Well, you mentioned that you have a mechanical engineering background. And one of the things I think maybe people don't appreciate is like how difficult it is to seal anything that has to do with water like putting water in a bag there's a lot that can go wrong there and i know you know from my own experience i've had so many packs that leak and I'm like why is this leaking and you know half the time it's because i set the bag down on the valve and the thing leaked all over the place other times mm -hmm. i didn't seal it right i didn't you know something that i did wrong or maybe the pack broke what is the hardest part of getting that 
pack to reliably seal? Like what are, what are the biggest challenges that you see as a mechanical engineer? Yeah, I mean, you've, you're absolutely right. Sealing in water is deceptively, it seems <laughs> simple, but it's quite difficult. Yeah, plumbers are really well paid. <laughs> <laughs> and even, you know, the and some of the challenges that we have is that uh, it's one thing to take a, a solid or rigid container and try and trap mm-hmm. water inside of it. But when you're taking a flexible container, uh, it's yeah. even trickier because the, tr- the container can move all over. And so where your water is and what kind of pressures you have, you can change. Mm-hmm. And then in particular, with the kind of materials we use, they're stretchy. And right. it, it's fantastic because if you fall down on your back, your, you know, your, your reservoir doesn't just burst. It actually stretches out of the way mm-hmm. um, so yeah. that the water stays inside. Um, but that also can really change the amount of forces and pressures internally as it stretches and moves around. Mm-hmm. So um, I figured out re- pretty quickly early on that I wasn't able to use compute, you know, a CAD model or any sort mm-hmm. of drafting to figure out ceiling, that there was huh. a certain amount of it that just had to be make the products, produce them, go <laughs> use them and see how they perform. Oh, wow. And so Interesting. It, it, it ended up being, you know, it made for a slower development process than I think mm-hmm. other products would be. You just couldn't draw it on paper and know that it would work. You yeah. really had to build it to see if it would work. Um, huh. I think that was a real challenge, kind of dealing with that flexible side. Um, the other is just the, uh, and you know, this would be true of any manufacturing process. There's, there's many small components involved mm-hmm. in putting together a hydration reservoir. Yeah. Uh, and there's a certain amount of tolerance on every component. And the more you want to spend on the production, the tighter you can dial in the tolerance. Mm-hmm. And for the for the higher volume, uh, less expensive processes, usually the tolerances are a little you know looser. Okay. And you take any two tolerances that don't quite add up the same, or they're off in the wrong direction, and and that you get a, a drop of water that will right. leak. <laughs> so it it doesn't take even though everything else is perfect, you could even just get little variations in the manufacturing process. Yeah. So it's um, it's just inherently a product that's pretty tricky um, from mm-hmm. that standpoint that, mm-hmm. you know, people yeah. like to have like people like to see the products out there at a good price point, something they can afford. Um, so you're very conscious of, of costs when you're going through. But also just this thought that failure is one drop getting out. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty and, high and so standard. That's, yeah, it's a very high standard to have to meet. And so it, it's uh, it's been very tricky. Yeah, um, interesting. I, I will say it's uh, hydration packs in particular. You've got really two types of, of development going on there. You've got the cut and sew for the backpack, which is one mentality. Right. And then you've got the plumbing, mm-hmm. which is containing the water, which is really a different kind of mentality and production process. Yeah. And uh, and so that's I, that's when I started off with both, but I figured out pretty early on that my expertise and, and sort of what I could really add value to in the long run was mm-hmm. around the plumbing and okay. the hydration yeah. and the ceiling. And so that, and kind of led me down the path of focusing on that. Yeah. Right on. Well, you mentioned the other big name in the hydration pack space and Hydropack does things a little bit differently in that you provide the reservoirs for a lot of different pack brands. How has that model allowed you to grow the company? 
so as I just mentioned it, that was something that we realized that, that uh, making backpacks was different from making reservoirs. And there were different factories, different skills, different design packages. Um, you know, we were doing okay in the beginning, but, uh, but really at that time, uh, we were looking for a way to make a bigger impact to get our product to more people. And so we started talking to the brands that were developing their own backpacks and that wanted to, you know, had ideas in the area, but they really had no expertise in the hydration side of things. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was a, a great opportunity for, for us. We stepped in and we started working with some, some brands early on. I think, uh, so we started in 2001, it was about 2005 that we started up our first relationship with a, a backpack brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, that was fantastic. We were able to, we had a, you know, brand with their own built-in set of customers, um, their own, what they were trying to do with their packs. And then we could really focus on the hydration side. Um, mm-hmm. And it gave us access to a whole new set of athletes and a whole new set of product designers to work with. Mm-hmm to kind of hone our craft and to improve our product and to get feedback on it. <clears throat> and then um, and then as we went from one brand to another brand, we'd get another set of athletes and another set mm. of product designers. And so I, I found that it was a great feedback loop for us to really improve our products, to really, because yeah. uh, these were very sophisticated customers and the product designers, and they were working with professional athletes who were using the products. Um, mm. So we really got, um, some great exposure early on um, to having to make our product work, having to make it work well, having to make it reliable, kind of all the, you know, yeah. uh, the feedback was very immediate. <laughs> was that tough to hear? Was some of that like, oh man, we need to up our game or like, I don't know how we're going to solve this or, or, or did you welcome it? Are you the kind of person that's like, bring it on? You know, I, I really want to make this thing better. The, um, that great story. The first day I went to the trade a trade show is actually out, outdoor retailer in Salt Lake City and met with six different uh, brands to pitch them on our reservoirs. And, and we mm-hmm. had a different approach, which is about using a, a slide top closure as opposed to a screw cap. And that right. and at that time, everybody in the marketplace was using screw caps. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were told many times that day that we could never be successful if we didn't have a screw cap. And so, <laughs> okay. And so it was, you know, that was quite discouraging, but in the same sense, I kind of, in talking to the people, I felt I understood what their job was and mm-hmm. what their desire was their, uh, to make a better product and to bring innovation to the market and whatnot. And I walked away and said, okay, I understand this market. You know, we can, raise our game and be a great supplier here. Mm, um, yeah. And so, yeah, so for me, it was not immediately encouraging, but I was encouraged <laughs> just by like how much the people cared and how direct the feedback was. Mm. And we really started, you know, we started with uh, a small handful and then we grew over time. Um, Dekine was an early adopter for us um, that we worked with early on. Um, mm-hmm. Then we moved, and then Solomon was a big name that we got involved with, and that was a that was a great relationship because not only did they were they interested in the reservoirs, but we developed new products together, including the soft flask that gets used in running vests. Yeah. That was something that was kind of just completely between our team, the Solomon development team, and their top runner Killian Jordan, and some mm-hmm. of the products that he was looking for. 
and it spawned that whole uh, hydration vest concept yeah. and marketplace. Yeah. And I really give credit to Solomon for putting the marketing and the sales effort to get that out there. I mean, they're a great marketing organization and really introduced that product widely. Um, so that, that's that been a great relationship. And um, about six years ago, we got involved with Osprey Backpacks um, and helped them launch into the bike channel uh, with a different reservoir concept. And um, Osprey is now the, uh, the top brand in the US um, yeah. first for hydration packs. So uh, overall, we work with I think it's between 60 and 70 brands worldwide. Wow. Um, so it's, uh, and it is um, about half of our business. Hmm. So it's a, it's been a very successful um, direction. It's also been challenging because uh, when you're the hidden inside a backpack, people don't <laughs> see exactly yeah. what you're doing. So yeah. from that standpoint, while our, you know, we were literally making millions of products um, we would still go to events and talk to people and they wouldn't be aware of our brand. Right. Um, so it's um, it's been a very positive thing. I mean, I, I'm really happy that we took that direction and, and how it, it kind of shaped our company. And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, it, it's a different direction from what uh, our competitors have gone through. Um, being yeah. very, you know, our competitors have been much more uh, brand focused the entire time. So we've, it's kept us kind of honed in and specialized on a certain mm -hmm. set of categories, certain set of needs. And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes us today is that we are quite specialized. We still are hydration for athletes and right. that's what we do. And that's all we do. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, one of the things that a lot of new users, especially of hydration packs struggle with is how to clean their reservoirs. And like you said, you're, you're the expert. This is what you guys do. You're the mechanical engineer. So I want to get your tips for cleaning and caring for a hydration reservoir. And I know one of your companies actually, uh, bottle bright, uh, is mm -hmm. a product that's designed for doing just that, but walk us through that. What are like your, your biggest tips for, you know, keeping your hydration reservoir clean and taste free? Yeah. Well, I tell people, think of a reservoir just like anything in your kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. When you're done using it, you clean it, you dry it, and you put it away. Yeah, but not my Ziploc bags. I feel like this is a Ziploc <laughs> bag situation. Although I will say my okay. mother cleans Ziploc bags. She buys the like, you know, gallon size and right, right. soap and water, cleans them out, dries them and everything. <laughs> so. But most people don't want to do that. So, so what's, what's like yeah. the easy, easy solution? Well, the, um, you know, a lot of people have figured out if they use water, only water in the reservoirs, then they really mm -hmm. don't have to clean much. Okay. Then the trick, the trick is just to dry it. Okay. And so that's, so that's about, you know, when you're finished, when you're finished writing, uh, you want to empty out as much water as you can. Mm -hmm. You want to open up the, the closure system. So, um, and try to keep the film from contacting each other. So some air can circulate inside. Okay. And also so air can get to the base of the hose. So like I said, really what, what happens is when the product doesn't dry, that's mm -hmm. when you start to get bacteria build up and things start to seem a bit gunky. Um, right. And so the, the number one thing to think about is dry your reservoir. 
And so what are you going to do? You can you can hang it upside down and, and put something in so it drips empty. For for a lot of the hydropack reservoirs, you can actually turn them inside out. Um, oh, and once nice. you do that, the, the inside gets immediately exposed and dries within 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for other systems, you just can figure out a way to kind of prop that that uh, the opening so that it again so that it, it stays open and doesn't close. Um, and then you want some way for the water to be able to drip out. Um, so it's that again, kind of an advantage for me when I look at systems that are sealed on the end. Um, like we have the the closure on the end because then the water just fully runs out. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a screw cap that's on the side of a reservoir, it's a little trickier because if you hang it upside down, the water still pools in the bottom. Yeah. So you have to take a few more steps to figure out how to either take a paper towel and dry up that last bit of water yes, in there or do some, some do something to get it to open up. So that, that would be what the first thing I'd say is just think about drying it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the cleaning itself, you know, if you do, even with water, you will start to get some stuff, um, residue built up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, soap and water in a brush works great. Uh, a very small amount of, of bleach, like about one mm-hmm. or 2% percent mixed with water and sloshed around will also take care of things that grow okay. yeah. or, um, so bottle bright was a great product. Um, <clears throat> it was actually started by a couple of mountain bikers up in Vermont who were trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to clean their reservoirs. And one guy was a chemist, uh, chemistry engineer. And he said, Oh, there's gotta be a way we can do this with all natural materials because they mm-hmm. didn't want to use, uh, any detergents or synthetics. Okay. So they came up with a formula using um, all natural ingredients, nothing petroleum based. They figured out how to manufacture it in the U.S. Uh, all U.S. products, really, really solid thinking on their part. Um, and they grew it to a certain point. They actually were on, on Shark Tank at one point. Um, <laughs> wow. Every time, they, every time they replay that Shark Tank episode, our numbers spike on our website. Um, <laughs> But they they got it to a certain size, and then they decided they both kind of wanted to go back to their day jobs, and mm. uh, so they uh, they called me up and said, you know, kind of told me the story. We actually had bought some from them just to uh, for our warranty to send out for people who were looking for different ways to uh-huh. clean their reservoirs. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I took a look at it. It is just a great little tablet. It's effervescent, so you don't have to scrub. It kind of does mm. the work itself. Again, all natural, and I thought that was really kind of in the keeping of what people were looking for nowadays. Yeah, and it's also something that you can use out in the field pretty easily. You can put it in, shake it around, and actually pour the water straight onto the ground. Hmm. That it's uh, it's pH neutral afterwards, and it doesn't have any har- harmful chemicals. So we uh, we bought that that line from the two guys uh, about four years ago, um, and it's actually been just 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 done fantastically. Um, that it's that it's really found a user base, uh, if you will. People like to use it. Yes, it works great for reservoirs. It also works fantastic on stainless steel cups and mugs. Hmm. So if you've got a stainless steel bottle or cup and it's got some sort of coffee stains in it, mm-hmm. um, the kind you can't scrub out with a brush. Yeah. Um, you drop one of these tablets in, and it's just perfect after about mm-hmm. an hour. Yeah. So. Um, and there's all sorts of before and after photos on the internet that people circulate on that. So yeah, that's been a yeah. great product and, um, it costs a little bit to buy a cleaner. That's a single use cleaner. Um, mm-hmm. but it does do a great job. 
So if people are looking for kind of a surefire mechanism, um, bottle bright's a great solution. Yeah. And one that doesn't really require a lot of elbow grease seems like it's a, it's a win. I remember years yeah. ago testing a product. I don't, I don't think it's around anymore. Some guys invented like a, a dryer, basically an air dryer that you would mm. like attach to mm -hmm. your reservoir and turn this thing on and it would make a bunch of noise for <laughs> hours and hours while it was supposedly drying the reservoir. But uh, I don't think that really, yeah. really took off. So a lot of riders though, you know, we all have our preferences. Some of us like a hydration pack or reservoir. Others mm -hmm. prefer bottles. So I'm curious, what do you, what do you pack when you go out for a ride? Do you bring a couple of polar bottles, uh, which are made by your company or hydropack? Do you get a reservoir? What's your preference? So it definitely depends on the activity for me. Uh, hmm. If I'm mountain biking, which we still do, um, I'm, I've got, I still have a hydropack backpack from the days we made those with the reservoir. And so I've, I've just been always been a reservoir backpack guy for, for mountain biking. Hmm. Um, but to be honest, I am much more of a roadie than yeah. a mountain biker. And so when I go out on the road, I'm, I'm using polar bottles uh, oh. in bottle cages. And uh, I use a, our new Surge bottle, um, which is, but uh, sometimes insulated, sometimes single wall. Mm -hmm. Kind of depends on how much water I'm looking to carry and how hot the day is. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I do a, a fair amount of backpacking as well. You know, mm -hmm. I'm kind of lucky living here in California. We've got some nice mountains not too far away, and I like to go up once or twice a year. And so I'm always using the reservoirs when I backpack as well. Mm, so yeah. oh, I, I'm able to use a fair amount of the products we make, which uh, <laughs> actually I enjoy. I enjoy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you make that distinction between road biking and, and mountain biking, too. I think a lot of people are the same way, where you go in for a road ride, you think of bottles, and you go for mountain biking, uh, you go for a, a backpack. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, they're still both bikes. I'm a bottle guy myself, so, you know, whether okay. it's mountain or road, I don't want anything on my back. So, But it's good Got to have it. options. Makes sense. And I, and I see a lot of people using the waste packs now. Mm -hmm. um, which seems to be quite a nice option, especially in the mountain community for folks that don't want something on their back, but they, they're just not able to carry enough water on their frame. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to be a good in-between, and it's d definitely one that's taken off. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to ask you about is uh, what it takes to make an environmentally friendly product. A lot of the HydroPack products um, and the Polar Bottle products are um, said to be environmentally friendly and use uh, different recycled materials and things. I'm curious specifically to know how big of an impact that really has using recycled materials versus creating something that's going to last a really long time. Like if you could create a bottle mm. or a reservoir that's going to last five years um, as opposed to being replaced every couple is that as big of an impact as, as using recycled materials uh, to make the product in the first place? Well, it's it's a good question and, and one that I, I don't think it gets asked often enough. I think people, you know, like this term sustainability and mm -hmm. the words recycled and they get used by the marketing departments and, and it almost turns into another feature to sell a product. Right. Um, whereas, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle is much more a much more complete thought about can we just reduce things um, or right. reuse things rather than mm -hmm. just recycling. 
Um, so, you know, we make all of our products out of plastic and that's a problem long-term <laughs> if people yeah. can't, you know, come to the a good feeling about using plastics. Because mm -hmm. um, there's definitely, you know, kind of an anti-plastic sentiment, especially with single-use plastic bottles. Right. So we, we as a company, as a group, said we really need to address this head-on and make sure that, you know, we're really thinking about it and trying to stay at the forefront. Um, having said that, our number one goal is always to help athletes and to help mm -hmm. help athletes perform better. Yeah. So we don't want to sacrifice that performance or what we're delivering to the athletes because of sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, so the um, and so I it we've looked across all of our product range and looked and said what can we do. Um, first was what can we uh, take and make out of recycled products or make them recyclable. Mm -hmm. um, so packaging was the number one. So trying to make all of our packaging to not use plastics that just get thrown away, but to use cardboard that can be curbside recycled. Um, mm -hmm. We've looked at all of our taking away poly bags from as many products as possible. Um, it's a little difficult. We have customers that demand poly bags. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can't move away 100%, but we've moved towards wrapping in like tissue paper, things like that, uh, instead of poly bags. Uh, we have one product, which is called the Recon. It's a Triton um, hard plastic bottle um, mm -hmm. for backpacking. And we use the uh, the Eastman 50% uh, uh, post-consumer recycled material mm -hmm. that they have. It's called Eastman Renew. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a fantastic product. It has all the clarity and the strength of a, of a virgin plastic product. Mm -hmm. But it's 50% post-consumer um, PET bottles that are mm -hmm. mixed in. Yeah. So they're really at the forefront of recycling and and being able to reuse these materials in a way that's they've literally taken that whole um, supply chain for the hard plastic bottles and are are moving it towards fifty percent recycled, um, mm. just at all levels. So I think that's great to see. We're we were right on the the front wave of that product. Um, for something like our our bike bottles or LDPE bottles, it's a little trickier. Um, we have not been able to find a recycled content LDPE to use. Um, we do do what we call industrial recycling, where we take all of our uh, rejects in the assembly process um, or, or products that we have around the warehouse that we know are clean. We're able to cut them up, send them back to the supplier, regrind them, and use them to make new bottles. Mm -hmm. But we can't do that with the post-consumer just because of the, the sanitary aspect. Mm -hmm. So we're a little bit limited there. And for our, for our flexible products, it's tricky. The uh, the TPU material is a very specific material. It has very specific FDA sanitary requirements, and so trying to get recycled materials in there has been has been tricky. Hmm. Uh, we are talking to a couple of our um, backpack customers that use TPU coated fabrics about trying to gather up all of our TPU and send it to their manufacturers to have it um, ground up and reused in new TPU coated fabric products. Hmm. A lot of those products happen to be black, um, just kind of like kind of like the black duffel bags that are made out of the coated fabrics. Mm -hmm. So that works well for recycling. So we're kind of in the process of a lot of that right now. Um, that's part of the equation, though, is all the, the recycling. Um, that's really about trying to keep things out of, out of the landfill 
another way to keep things out of landfill is, as you said, is just to use things longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've started going to all of our events with a warranty chest. So we mm-hmm. basically bring, um, replacement bite valves, um, replacement tubes, replacement sliders, all sorts of little things for fixing up your, your system. Ah. And we provide free warranty service at, oh, at wow. events. And so we send out kind of our, 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 uh, uh social media posts beforehand saying, bring in your products, you know, re- renew them and bring yeah. them up to speed. And so we just kind of do that as a service so people can reuse the products. And then we're, we've been fortunate with the, um, the polar bottle product, the way that it's produced, um, we print on a foil liner that gets trapped in between the inner and outer walls of the bottle. Mm-hmm. And that means that your graphic doesn't get scraped off the outside of your bottle. Right. And so you, you see a lot of polar bottles that get used for years and years because they mm-hmm. continue to look good after you've been using them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we started um, pushing a, a cap replacement program. So the, the thing that does wear out are the valves on the caps. If you mm-hmm. put them through the dishwasher a while, they age a little bit, they get stiffer, or they don't seal quite right. And so you do need to replace your cap every year or two, but you can keep on reusing that bottle for many years. As right. long as you like the graphic, you can keep on going. So yeah. we're, we've actually been encouraging that whole kind of cap replacement business um, yeah. as something to, to help people prolong the life of their bottles. So we, we've definitely been embracing a lot of, um, so first of all, the, the recycled material, second of all, ways to lengthen the use of, of, of your product and then the third thing we've done as a, as a company is we've committed to uh, being climate neutral. And mm-hmm. so last year we, we went through the full process of measuring our carbon footprint. We ended up going ahead and becoming climate neutral certified last year, which mm-hmm. meant that we determined the size of our carbon footprint and then we purchased offsets mm-hmm. um, to offset our entire carbon footprint as a company. Wow. So, wow. so they're they're all just steps but like i said it's really it's i think it's more incumbent upon us as a company that works with plastics to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be at the forefront and uh and so let the athletes use the product that's best for them and feel good about it yeah and it sounds like you're finding ways along all those dimensions like you mentioned you know the the mantra is reduce reuse recycle and so you know, I mean, reuse, number one, obviously you're selling reusable bottles, right? These are not mm. like single mm-hmm. use. You're not running into the gas station and buying a, a bottle of water before you ride. Like you're reusing mm-hmm. the bottle every time you go out and obviously incorporating recycled products and recycling your own products when you're able to. Um, and then, yeah, reducing packaging. I mean, you have to do all of those things and it sounds like you're you're able to address them. Um, all sort of in different ways and at different parts in the process. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about U.S. manufacturing, investing in the bike industry, and the California Outdoor Recreation Partnership. Stay tuned. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. 
and we're back. So Matt, aside from supply chain issues, has the current pandemic caused you to rethink your business in any significant ways? Boy, who hasn't uh, had to think about everything they've been doing for the last 18 months and and think about whether they're doing it the right way or not. Um, So supply chain has been very big. We've we've been blessed to be, have long-term partners on supply chain, both in Asia Mm -hmm. and in the US. So from that standpoint, um, again, we haven't been as impacted as many folks. We've just been able to strengthen those relationships. So I feel blessed on that front. We've we've definitely re- had to relook at marketing, how we reach out mm. to the consumers, yeah. um, and that I think we have worked a lot through the traditional channels. I would say, kind of working through our retailers, working through magazines, working through PR agencies, whatnot, um, and that kind of all stopped with mm. the pandemic. Yeah, and we, we had to look at what was working. Um, which was our direct digital outreach. Um, we had just redone our websites to put a new message out there um, as of the uh, beginning of 2020. So we were fortunate in that timing. Um, and we were just starting to push on advertising on digital for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it really, um, what we found was it was working when we started getting the word out there, when we started taking our message and communicating it directly to consumers and and Mm -hmm. thinking less about the channels that we were going through, uh, we were getting great reaction, Uh, great reaction um, just in engagement with folks and and emails Mm -hmm. and whatnot, but then also um, sales on our website, um, sales through Amazon, and then sales through our retailers. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're following our retailers as well. And and then also feedback through our OE customers. So it was uh, kind of a great win, if you will, that that's where folks were, that's where everybody was looking and we had a good message to get out there. And yeah. I do believe in this concept of um, being focused. And I think that focused message was resonated. Mm-hmm. And so um, we literally just started committing more money every month to advertising and and to communicating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And each time we did it, we found we were getting a positive return. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we really are spending a lot more money communicating today than we did a year and a half ago, directly Mm -hmm. to consumers and kind of getting the message and the, um, you know, it's just, it's, yes, it's, it's advertising when you think about it, but it's so, so much more than advertising nowadays. We're talking about events we just finished a fundraiser for the Marshall Fire Fund in Colorado, mm-hmm. kind of touching base with all of our folks around that. Uh, it's it's really about kind of promoting a community. Right. Uh, and, you know, Hydropack's a small company. Not everyone's going to get super excited about being part of our community. But, you know, people like to see that they are associated with brands doing interesting things. And mm-hmm. To touch base or plug in once or twice a month is okay. And mm-hmm. so... Um, we found that to be uh, a great change from where we were at two years ago and really positive about that going forward. Just the feedback that we're getting and the way that it's really supported everyone in our network. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, when I've been an employer, a, a business owner for quite a while, um, and I had a very 
I would say my view of how the workday goes mm-hmm. and and for people and how they're supposed to work and, and whatnot hadn't changed much in that time yeah. period. And so this has really made me stop and rethink the five day work week, yeah. uh, the office format, you know, how we do meetings and uh, how our conference rooms are set up. And, and, mm-hmm. and we've started getting more into the design for people's jobs. I haven't yeah. been there, but we just hired people in positions and promoted them. We could now we're trying to design career paths for people um, so that, so that they kind of know what the next step is when they start. So I think there's a, you know, I think these are all positive things, um, mm-hmm. but it, it's, you know, just as we've, we've struggled so much to, to keep people safe and to think about what they're doing. Um, I think it's, it's really helped me focus quite a bit more on uh, employees and how important our staff is, how important our team members are, mm-hmm. and to try to make it to a better experience for them, yeah. um, for working and something that, you know, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be the last guy to adopt an important new change. Um, but I also, you know, we still, we run a business and we're, we're here for certain things. So trying to balance that out, um, that, that thinking, I think right. has been a pretty major shift. Yeah. We've seen a lot of companies in the bike industry lately shifting more toward that direct relationship with consumers and and selling directly on their websites. I mean, even some of the biggest bike brands who have been like the longest holdouts Mm -hmm. in that over time are are moving to that as people get more comfortable, you know, having things delivered to their homes and, you know, interacting directly with the brand and not, you know, the same retailer that they've, they've always gone to. Um, And and yeah, obviously we're seeing changes in workplaces as well. I have a, a good friend of mine has been a long time Amazon uh, leader. And so I've had a lot, a lot of glimpses into that business over the years. Mm-hmm. And one thing that that's been true the whole time is uh, how st- he, they've always said specialty retail is specialty retail and mm-hmm. that, that, and it will survive um, that it's something mm-hmm. that, that those big folks know they can't really touch. Um, that kind of connection that people make one-on-one in those shops. So mm, I've always, t- uh, as I've grown my business, I've, I've looked at that as a uh, positive statement for the health of our channel. So even mm-hmm. though, you know, yes, people are, the, the, the number of channels are growing mm-hmm. and, and things will change. But yeah. I do think uh, specialty retail is on solid footing. Yeah, interesting. Well, we sort of touched on supply chain stuff, and I want to mention that Polar builds uh, products in Colorado using U.S. sourced materials. So I'm curious to find out, like, what are the advantages of doing that? Obviously, um, there can be some supply chain advantages. Um, And another part is that um, we think consumers are interested in buying U.S. U.S made products. Do you think that plays a big role? You know, we kind of mentioned the environmental stuff that that's like, maybe people consider that when they buy a product, maybe they don't. Do you think building products in the U.S. is uh, something that consumers care about or is it, is there another reason for doing it? Um, It's a good question. I, I, I can't, I can't say that I've seen over the years 
that people building in the U.S. are successful and people not building in the U.S. are not successful. Right. So it seems to be a factor, but but not the driving factor. Yeah. And and even if you will, I think it's kind of a lower down factor um, Mm -hmm. for at least for consumers making purchase decisions. So um, we we try to make sure that people know that it is a purely uh, U.S. source product. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never believed in relying upon that as the sales message mm-hmm. that really it has to be that the product works for you as a person. That mm-hmm. has to be the number one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the I do think there are significant benefits to having a U.S. supply chain. Um, and we try to get those out there. Um, so, as I mentioned, by having this shorter supply chain without having to have the you know, because I've I've dealt with all the difficulties of a six thousand mile, you know, two different language supply chain for mm-hmm. years. I understand it, and I understood it back when I was at Marin Mountain Bikes, on the bike side of things. Um, and so the the idea of doing it in the U.S. has been so such a nice change from the the ease and and really from when we, as opposed to being six months from start to finish, now we can talk about 30 days from when we oh, wow. very start the process and bring things together and have the finished product. So that, that's that been a real benefit for us as a company. The way that it plays out for us is benefits the marketplace. Um, so we do try to hold about 100,000 bottles in stock. Hmm. Um, and we're able to match our, produ- we do production. Uh, we produce about 25,000 bottles a week on a peak week. Um, and we use that to replenish the right products, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we can take yeah. a look at, we can offer more colors and more varieties of products and then more easily fill in um, as those are, are sell, sold for different, you know, if one goes up in popularity, the other goes down. So we have a little broader product line, I feel. Um, the number of graphics we offer in our insulated products, um, some of the color options in our single wall bottles. Um, the different tops that we have, our sport kind of classic top and our, our surge um, self-sealing valve top, and then some of the dust covers that we offer, we're, we're able to um, switch up our, our our production very quickly and be able to maintain our, our stock levels well. And so we did not go out of stock in the last year and a half wow. um, that we were able to continue to supply folks once we, we had that supply built up. The other thing we do with that is we... Uh, we manufacture all of our our custom insulated bottles in house as well, and so we print them. We're able to produce them, and we're able to turn around orders in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a very fast supply chain for insulated product. Um, the pricing on it is very competitive, um, only a little bit more than our inline products, um, and we've been able to maintain that availability all through this cycle as well um, mm-hmm. because of that inventory. So those are some real advantages, I think. They're primarily supply advantages, like not necessarily mm-hmm. consumer advantages, but they're, they're advantages to the channel for us as a supplier. And so mm-hmm. we've tried to emphasize those um, as being the benefits from being crafted in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think we all have gotten an education in how supply chains work and how they're all so interwoven. And, you know, I'm thinking about even when I read that a product is, you know, made in the USA, I'm sure there's some legal definition that says like, you know, as long as 90% is made in the US, then you can say that, or, you know, uh, raw materials count or they don't. I mean, is that, Mm -hmm. is that the case? Like when you say USA made, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that like the petroleum was, you know, came from a U.S. like place and it was refined here and then it was like made into pellets. And, you know, I mean, there's some point where you're still relying on on sources outside the U.S. Is that is that true? Yeah, but that's a good question. Made in the USA, from what I understand, is 100 hmm. percent. Um, but if you're talking about, like you said, the raw pellets prior to a certain step of conversion. I'm not sure how that works, how far, far back it goes. I know we've had to, we've had to work pretty hard to keep our manufacturing supply chain all within the US, you mm -hmm. know, including printing our swing tickets, for example, and whatnot, like finding um, oh, wow. not even just packaging, even the packaging. Yeah. So not just the molders and the, uh, and also the, the printing for our color films, whatnot. So it, it is a challenge to maintain that made in the USA label. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of folks have figured out how to say um, assembled in the U.S. from <laughs> U.S. Right. and foreign sources or right. Apple says designed in California. Yeah, that's a big you one. Know, a lot of the bike companies made, say that, too. Yeah, I've got a yeah, giant so that, road bike from years ago, and it, it has a huge USA flag on the frame, you know, on the uh, on the down yeah. to this like. But you read the text and it says like designed in USA and then real small, it's got like made in Taiwan. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of folks have figured out how to game that a little bit to, to dilute the message. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. it's, um, I guess you, you know, have to look into a little bit to know exactly what you're buying. Um, mm -hmm. But, but hopefully I do think there's a trend that people see the value um, for su some supply chains in in making it U.S. sourced or or increasing the amount of U.S. sourced, so I think that'll I think that'll help. I think the pendulum's swinging back a little bit. Yeah, good, good. So you are one of the founding members of the California Outdoor Recreation Partnership. So I'm curious to know what are some of the things that the partnership is currently advocating for at the state level in California. So. Uh, a group of us came together uh, about four years ago when uh, there was a movement for outdoor recreation offices to open at the state mm -hmm. level. And uh, it was really this idea that there had been a lot of focus on the national level, on national parks, on national conservation, but there hadn't been the same sort of concerted uniform effort on the state level. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, a lot in the, many of the different states, um, people said, let's make a outdoor recreation office uh, so I was part of the group that started in California. California, of course, being significant because it's about 13% of our population. And um, I think the estimates are up to about 20% of the recreational spend happens mm. in California. Wow. Um, now, California is kind of a zoo. I mean, it's uh, up, up to 40 million people. So when you go to the um, Sacramento, the state capital, it, really the only thing bigger is the federal government. So it's yeah. hard to kind of drop in and be a part-time participant in the process mm -hmm. um, that, that there's a lot of money there. It's, it's a full-time affair. And even though California has spent uh, billions of dollars over the years on conservation, there hasn't been much of a voice for the outdoor recreation community. And mm -hmm. especially in recent years, um, there's been a real push towards conservation without keeping in mind uh, recreation use. Mm. So taking land, purchasing it and putting it aside only for wildlife. 
Yeah. And there were many stories of, of areas where there were mountain biking trails, um, sometimes established and recognized, other times just informal. Uh, and then they were put, you know, stopping people from using those areas once they became mm. wilderness. Yeah. So we were by by going through conservation, we were actually losing some of our human interaction with our outdoor mm -hmm. spaces. And to yeah. me, it's that human interaction that we develop a value for the outdoor and therefore that we want to keep the outdoor and keep yeah. it looking like the outdoors. Um, so that was part of our message um, that we wanted to have a voice for outdoor recreation. So we're representing um, brands, specialty retailers, and service providers here in the state. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the brands nationally are, are again, are very interested in California. So they're uh, participating and then we're, we're building a base now of, of retailers, uh, service providers being people like independent sales reps and some guide services and whatnot. Um, and we've, we've had made some good inroads in talking to the administration and working with legislatures. Um, our two real priorities, the first is to, uh, to maximize the amount of spending on outdoor recreation infrastructure in the state. So mm -hmm. parks, trails, um, uh, trailheads, um, mm -hmm. things that, that provide access for people, uh, increased dirt trails, for example, big push. Um, and we've, we've seen a great victory this year. There's been over a billion dollar budget oh, in wow. the California state budget. That's just for outdoor recreation, both, uh, on the infrastructure improvement and on programs. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a significant increase in what it's been in the past. So we're, we're out there advocating to make sure, if you will, that outdoor recreation continues to get a good slice of the pie and continues mm -hmm. to have a real, uh, vibrant infrastructure here in the state, because we We've got a huge population. Um, the second thing is we're trying to increase the number of people recreating outdoors each year. Um, if you look at the participation rate in our state, um, we're actually the lowest in outdoor participation of all the Western states. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is a little surprising, you think, because I mean, California used to be the epicenter of things. I think that's changed a bit in the last 20 years, I mean, from the outdoor and recreation side. Uh, but the biggest issue is that our that we have uh, communities within the state, uh, certain populations that don't recreate at the same rate as others. Mm -hmm. And so um, our African-American population, um, our Asian population, our Hispanic population uh, don't don't go out and bike and hike and run at the same rate as mm -hmm. the rest of the population. And mm -hmm. so there's a whole um, equitable access um, component to this, yeah. uh, of just education and access for these communities based upon where they live, um, and, uh, what kind of resources they have. And so we've been working with the state to try to address equitable access, um, you name it programs to, to take kids fourth grade out to the national parks, expose them to the outdoors, mm -hmm. um, publishing the park, uh, materials in different languages, um, everything we can to help, um, increase that access component and mm -hmm. ultimately increase the number of people recreating outdoors. And, you know, that's, you know, for us as an industry, yes, we want to see more people participating because uh, that helps drive the industry, but it's also addresses that question of equity and fairness, which I think everybody likes to see addressed as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, those are obviously two big issues nationally as well. And, 
you know, California does tend to, you know, I mean, it's like you said, it's the biggest economy, um, biggest state by population as well. And so as California goes, oftentimes uh, the rest of the country goes. So that's, that's great to see that, that increasing access and making sure there are more trails, because I think no matter where we are, um, especially as mountain bikers, we always, always want more trails and the pandemic has just sort of amplified that need and made it more obvious that people yeah. enjoy that and, and we need more places to, to recreate. Well, there's a good, uh, I'll give a shout out to Cal MTV, um, who's a very well organized and active organization. They uh, came out with their members last year and helped us um, to talk to lawmakers mm-hmm. and to help to make the case and, and really good advocates for local trail building and expanding local trail building. And we were able, they were able to talk to their local politicians about it. So um, I think that was exactly what our 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 causes need to do: kind of come yeah. together, both as the industry and as the the recreationists, and make sure that people understand what we want and that uh, that it's not bad, <laughs> and and that we can work together to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know you mentioned the industry, the outdoor industry is is obviously a big employer and you know part of the economy but tourism outdoor related tourism i'm sure is is as big or bigger and it's not just Mm. you know i mean a lot of the things that we do are free you know we can go visit parks and things but then there's all the the things around that in terms of like you're eating in restaurants and you're staying in hotels and all kinds of other things that ripple across the economy and it's it's great to see um, more recognition of that and sort of the value that recreation brings. Absolutely. The, Ca- California's had one of the biggest advertising programs on that front for years. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, and has been kind of the the vanguard, but it's great to see places like uh, Bentonville uh, mm-hmm. who are really raising their profile now and, and seeing the, the benefits from that and how it can help the, turn around the whole community um, just yeah. by really embracing outdoor recreation. And, and you see that a lot in places like Utah, Colorado, Oregon, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, that are, that are really embracing outdoor recreation as an economy now. Yeah, yeah, a lot of competition for our tire tracks and our boot marks. So I read that you're also a registered investment advisor and it seems you've done pretty well with Hydropack. I'm curious to know, in your opinion, is the bike industry a good place for individuals to invest their savings and for retirement? I remember looking years ago, uh, probably at least 20 years ago, for bike companies, like publicly traded bike companies, and they were all penny stocks. So it's, it's like, <laughs> bike, is this like a good business for us to be in? Like, you know, is this a place people can can get rich or build wealth, or 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 what's your take on sort of investing in the bike industry? Well, it's a good question. They, uh, I mean, I, I I started off out of college doing some banking, and so that's how I got a, mm-hmm. a registered investment advisor, and then I've, I've maintained it just to help my family and friends. Yeah. So I can't say I'm an active investment advisor right from that we're not sense. right and this I'm, is not you're not giving investment <laughs> advice we're not <laughs> i'm not giving investment <laughs> advice yes um but i'll tell you i mean personally i am more heavily invested in the outdoor and bike industry than anything else because mm-hmm. the majority of my uh wealth creation and wealth is tied up in my company and right. my company is 100 percent dedicated to this 
marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's true for the majority of the people who are involved in this marketplace. They're not, they're not necessarily involved just as shareholders of corporations, um, but there are more people who have started businesses, whether it's retailers or brands or, or you name it. Uh, that and so there, it's more private ownerships. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I see a lot of. And I mentioned earlier, specialty retail um, has a great place um, mm -hmm. as far as connections one on one. So I think I, you know, for people who are are invested and successful in it, I do think there's a future um, for people who are brands and equipment um, when we've get something like recently the 20% increase in participation or whatever the number is you want to look at um, that's happened during COVID that's just a great sign you know when there's yeah. more people here when we get more exposure that's the right place to be so the, the numbers were a little challenging coming up into COVID but this has been a great bump hmm. and so I think you know there's there have been many people who've been successful in this area um, maybe not you know, in the billions, but uh, certainly right. lots of millionaires. And <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people happy with their, their experience here. So I, I look at it and say it's a good industry. Um, it's an industry that's a bit self-made from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. Either you do it yourself or you don't. Um, right. And I know there's a lot of, uh, of places that aren't successful as well. So um, yeah, it's not the easy, easiest place. Okay. I, I have found it kind of you know, we've we've relied for a number of years on the outsourcing of products to cheaper and cheaper locations mm -hmm. to keep our price points um, low. You know, obviously with, with most bikes coming out of China as of a couple of years ago. And now we're seeing a little bit of the drawback of that, mm -hmm. um, which is, yes, we've kept them low, but uh, uh, we haven't really maintained a robust base uh, for manufacturing and supply. And... So now that we're trying to address that, we're seeing the prices going back up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that'll be good because that'll mean we could produce the products competitively in more different places and probably broaden that supply base again. Uh, but it does mean we'll have to make sure that we're we're not just filling garages with gear that people only use once a year. We'll have to, <laughs> you know, make sure that uh, we get people out more often and they could get more value out of the product. So yeah. I, I, I'm I'm bullish on the industries. Um, I, I personally have been satisfied. Um, again, investing the majority of my wealth here. Um, yeah. But uh, as far as stocks, I, I don't follow them very cl closely <laughs> for the industry. Yeah. Just the things I read in the in the industry papers in the morning about who's buying whom and whatnot. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting that. Like you said, there's a lot of like privately held companies and things, and a lot of these brands are self-made. These are passion projects. These are people who, you know, they just love the outdoors. They love biking, and so they they want to create a product or you know be a part of that industry. Um, and you know, I always joke with people too. You know, we all of us love to complain about how expensive bikes are, and you know, oh, the, you know, these bike brands, they must be just making so much money because they're selling these $10,000 bikes. But like you said, I don't know that there are any bike billionaires, right? I mean, this isn't like tech right. or <laughs> finance. I mean, maybe Mike's in yard at specialized, maybe he's, he's probably worth at least a billion, but you know, other than that, like, yeah, nobody seems to be getting like 
ridiculously rich and everybody I've spoken with and met over the years. Um, yeah, I mean, they're a part of this industry because they love it, not because they're trying to get rich or anything. And so I think, I think that's one of the things that, that makes the industry unique. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, even to the point where people will do the jobs for less. Yeah. And so the, with the wages staying somewhat, uh, depressed and that's, always a little challenging when you compare working in our industry to other industries where people right. aren't doing it just for the cultural experience or the exposure um, right. is that it's that, that the wages can be a little lower and that's, that's always a challenge. So, yeah. um, but a passion project is a good, good term for it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, finally, uh, I want to ask you, um, how much product and design and development you're able to do these days? You know, obviously you're, you're trying to run a company, um, but you do have that background. And so, you know, as someone who has studied mechanical engineering, what, what frustrates you about the biking experience today? Do you see any sort of opportunities that, um, yeah, maybe people aren't looking at that, that you think they should? Hmm. Um, so I, cert I I still am involved in product design. Um, I would say it's a little higher level. Um, mm -hmm. If you go back 10 years ago, I was on all of the patent applications and very actively oh, cool. hands-on. Um, that's not really the case today. I've got a, a great team of engineers um, who are not only great designers, but uh, a shout out to John Austin on my staff, who's really been the head in, in our sustainability efforts. Mm. So it's great to see folks who are, are are thinks, thinking both about product design and and other other elements as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that is something for the future. Um, I'm I'm a little bit more the uh, I guess you, I use the word visionary. You know, someone mm -hmm. keeping us on track and making mm -hmm. sure that we are that we're focused on on what we need to be focused on. And, and yeah. from that standpoint, I'm a little bit like the uh, the lead customer in there <laughs> in the product design group and, and trying to, to talk about what we want to have and what we don't have. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I, I do miss it sometimes, but, uh, you know, it's important as you go through that your positions evolve over time, that you have a new job every five or seven years, mm -hmm. even if, you know, I've haven't been able to chip switch companies, but it's always good to have a new job and mm -hmm. a new focus just to keep yourself fresh. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for, Again, I'm I'm a bit more focused on the road side of things than the mountain side. Mm -hmm. um, I was immensely relieved when disc brakes came <laughs> on the scene. Yeah, <laughs> that's a mountain biker. I, thing. I, See, I think you are a mountain biker. You just oh, it's, road bikes. it's a. I, I've had I've had discs on on my mountain bikes for a long time, mm -hmm. and so I was. Uh, I've got about a 200 pound frame, so I'm no goat. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I'm coming down those hills faster than I'm going up. Them. Yeah. And so just from a safety standpoint, I, I was on a uh, century ride a few years back um, where somebody went down. And now we've got these crazy hills out here in California. I went down a little too fast and flew off the edge and, and died. Okay. Um, and that's, yeah, it's you know, serious issues with safety. And so I, I was really happy to see um Disc brakes come in and just the element of safety that's been evolved there. So that's that's a great technology. Again, that came from mountain. They brought it over to road. Mm -hmm. uh, it's improved the products. 
to me substantially, and they've been able to get the price points to a reasonable level with it. So I was happy to see that. Um, I'm, I'm still, you know, I've, uh, I was about to try my first electronic shifting and some of these new things coming out, um, before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit and all the bikes became in such short supply, I right. said, I'll, I'll just wait a little bit till <laughs> let, let all the consumers buy the bikes. I'm fine yeah. with the one I've got. Won't be the early adopter on that one. Yeah. So looking forward to trying out some of that, you know, I, I do think there's, uh, opportunities for drivetrain and drivetrain improvement over time. You know, we still have, if you look at the, uh, when the current, you know, drivetrain system evolved, it's been around for quite a while. Mm, right. um, and to me, there's, you know, there could be some interesting developments on that that come over time that make it a bit more reliable, a little better experience. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't have anything specific, but uh, I'm certainly happy to adopt the new stuff as they come along. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's a great attitude to have for sure. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us and and talking to us about Hydropack and and all the things that you're doing in the industry. Really appreciate you taking the time, Jeff. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, you can find out more about Hydropack and some of the products we talked about at hydropack.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>